every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. If he didn't do one more thing, if he didn't do one more thing, we would go to heaven happy and thankful and grateful for the goodness of God in our lives. Amen. Well, it's good to see all of you here today, and those of you we can't see, we know you're looking good wherever you are out there. Someone has said, praise, praise looks good on the people of God, that we'd be clothed in a garment of praise. I want you to find in your copy of the scripture, the book of Galatians to begin with this morning, Galatians chapter 5. Have you ever wondered what the personality of Jesus was like. What what would he be like if you could just spend an evening with him? Not on the Sermon on the Mount, not necessarily when he's with the Pharisees and defending his mission, but just in the quietness of a home or sitting with him just one-on-one. What was his personality like? What was Jesus like? I believe there is is one verse or two in the Scripture from the Apostle Paul that give us a personality sketch, if you will, of Jesus of Nazareth. If you look at Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16 and down through verse 21, he begins to, uh, Paul just takes apart how we are divided up as a Christian, as a believer. There are two parts of you. Well, actually, one way of looking at it, body, soul, and spirit, so there are three parts of us, but then there's another way of looking at it, and that's the That's the old you before Jesus and the new you since Jesus. Now, the great thing is um, the new you in Jesus, the the new man, the life life in the spirit of Christ, that's with us forever. He, He is with us and in us forever. The old you, that old man, that old woman before Jesus began his work of changing. That part of you also stays with you, stays in you, until we leave this life physically, and our body is in the grave, and then when the body stays here, then the spirit and the soul go up to be with the Lord, but but the flesh, the old man, stays here. And Paul talks about that, that for the Christian alive on the earth right now, There can be a war. There can be a battle between the new you in Jesus and the old you like you used to be. He says the two are in complete contradiction with each other. They're inside one body, the same body, but they're going in opposite directions. And there'll be times when the two fight with each other. The old man struggling with the new man. And he he lists here what the evidences of the old man are. Now, I'm not going to take time to read that, but if, if you're having 
problem with your temper, if you're having problem with overindulgence on things, if you're having having problems with um, you know just stirring up strife somewhere with folks or being stirred up by somebody else's strife, then what what I have to understand is that 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 connects with this old man, this before Jesus part of us. But then he goes on to say, and look in starting verse twenty two, what the evidence of Jesus alive in us is going to look like. And he, he calls it the fruit of the Spirit as opposed to the fruit of the flesh. The evidence of Jesus, the result of the Spirit of Jesus alive in us are the following. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The interesting thing here is when he says it's the fruit of the Spirit, we are to understand, and from Paul's way of looking at it, the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord Jesus is the Spirit. He never referenced um, Jesus without reference, without also speaking of him as Lord. The Lord Jesus is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So the fruit of the Spirit described here is the evidence, the results of the Spirit of Jesus in a person's life. Well, if they are the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus, then they must be consistent with who Jesus is, the Spirit of Jesus. I love those stories how Luke in particular would describe how all these people from all kinds of different walks of life, from the ones that were wealthy and they had heard about this Jesus of Nazareth and they just wanted to check him out, just see if he was for real, and they would come. The lepers would come, the ones that were called the, the untouchables. You, you weren't even supposed to get close enough for them to brush up against you, they would have to come into a, a crowd and they were required to call unclean, unclean, so people would stay away from them. There were the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the ones that were, that were considered by, by many in that day just the, the moral despicables. We say around here often, you, you pick out your most morally despicable lifestyle or the most morally despicable profession, and everywhere you see scribes and Pharisees, or, or excuse me, every, everywhere they were the religiously up and out, but everywhere you see the tax gatherers and sinners, you insert your name for the most morally despicable lifestyle or, or profession in that place. But Luke would say, even those, even the morally despicable, heard Jesus gladly, that the common people would hear Jesus gladly, that they would, they would come to see some things that he would do, the miracles, the signs, the wonders that he would do, but they would also come to hear him teach because it, they would say he spoke with an authority that their teachers, the religious leaders of the day, and their didn't have. But you know what I think? I think they flocked to hear him and to be around him 
not just because of what he said, but the way he said it. That, that, that it wouldn't matter what your background was. It wouldn't matter if you, were, if you knew a lot about the Bible or if you were just a religious outcast. Some way or another, there was something about the personality of Jesus that drew people to him. He was like a magnet. People just wanted to be around him. His personality was one of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, all the things that are listed there. Have you ever noticed that somebody who is joyful just seems to carry with them an air of attractiveness? On the other hand, somebody who's just always mad, somebody who's always cranky, somebody who's always negative, somebody who's always pointing the finger, you can just figure out someplace else to be, can't you, when they show up. But when there is someone in whose presence, you feel they respect you. They may not agree with everything that's going on in your life, but you at least feel like there is a there was a respect that there is, we would, could use the word here, love, love and joy. There's a jo- Joyful people are attractive people, just like mad people and always angry people are unattractive. It's amazing how we can dress up, clean up, bathe, get everything where it needs to be and have on these fancy, you know, outfits and stuff. <laughs> And as long as that person who's dressed like that doesn't say a word, you're just fine with them. But the minute they open their mouth and they are mad and they were down on the world and it just seemed like the whole world stinks to them, then you just feel like, just just keep your mouth shut. Just stand there and look pretty, look, look nice, but don't say anything because my world's already got enough of that stuff going on. There was something about, I believe, that as the personality, who Jesus was on the inside flowed out, that people wanted to be around him. One of those characteristics that are listed here, I I want us to look at a little deeper this morning, and it's his joy. It's the joy of Jesus. If the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, all of those characteristics are things that we can anticipate that as we pray, Lord, fill me with your spirit, shape me more into the image of Jesus, then these nine characteristics are going to become more and more pronounced in our lives too. That's where we're headed. We're headed in the direction of a life more saturated by love, knowing that I'm loved, but then having love to give away. Joy is a a result word. I'm joyful as a result of something. Jesus was joyful as a result of something. I want you to find your way, leave leave Galatians and and go with me to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, in this familiar passage of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 12. Let me start with verse 1 and read down into where we're going to spend a little time. Therefore, this is Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hebrews 11, you'll remember that was the listing of the great heroes of faith. You've got Abraham and David and Noah and all of them listed. And the idea was that they had some choices to make with their lives. They could have chosen to go at their own way, do what they wanted to do or the course of the world, or they could choose to buy into the plan that God had for them and to run out that course that God set for them with endurance. And in order to do that, they had to lay aside some sins and some weights in their lives in order to, to run their course with endurance. So he's saying in the same way, we're going to have some choices. There are some things we're going to have to give up. There are some things that we'll have to set aside. They may not be flat-out sins, but they're just weighty. They're heavy. They slow us down. They're a burden to carry that we have the option of laying aside. We choose to lay aside. But then he also says there can be certain sins Certain things that are just, they're just not right in the sight of God. But they've become a part of our lives and we're so familiar with them, it can be difficult for us to see what life would be like if we didn't do those things or didn't make those choices in those ways. So we're going to have to make choices to lay aside some weights and lay aside some sins in order to run the course that the Lord has set for us. That's the writer of Hebrews here. But then he says in verse 2, here's how we do that. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Now, let me just stop right there. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the author. That means the initiator, the one who began this walk of faith, this, this life of faith that we're speaking of here. The beginner, the one who begins, and the perfecter, the one who completes. He, he began it in us, and he will complete it in us. And then this word for faith, the perfecter of faith. Remember, we've been talking about that. I've been spending some time on this matter of what faith is and the power of the Spirit to do the work of bringing faith to life in us. Remember, the meaning of the word faith is this, to be persuaded of something to be convinced of something. Only the Lord, by the power of His Spirit, can convince us and persuade us of the things that He wants us to believe Him for. We can say all day long, well, you need to believe this, and you ought to believe for that. Or you're... The bottom line is, we don't have any power to believe. We don't have any power to exercise faith unless the Spirit is the one who is convincing us and persuading us of that which the Lord is calling us to believe him for. That there's a difference between faith in the Bible and faith in a cultural sense. We're to have faith in America, faith in the family, faith in the flag, all those things. Those are temporal, and, and it's, it's a good direction to lean in. But that kind of faith is different than what the Bible talks about faith being. And I want you to get there. Remember, it comes from the word to be persuaded, to, to be convinced of something. It is the power of the Spirit. If you're having a hard time believing, it's not up to you to try to work faith up in your heart. That's not a property that you can come up with or that the Lord's assigned us as a responsibility to maintain. It is only the power of the Spirit of the living Jesus who can convince you of something unseen 
who can persuade you of some result that in the middle of things right now, it's a total war, it's a total battle, it looks like it's going the other direction. But down on the inside of you, where the Spirit of the Lord is doing His work of instilling faith, what He's doing is He keeps persuading you, He keeps convincing you that no matter what it looks like, no matter how long it's lasted, no matter who's against you or who's for you, it's going to happen. And it's not tied to you believing. It's tied to you being persuaded that what he has convinced you of, he is going to do. Amen. So, So we find that summarized in this form, in this statement, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the initiator of that which we are persuaded of and convinced is true, and the one who will complete the things that he has persuaded us and convinced us that he will do. You get your eyes on Jesus. Don't get your eyes to the left or to the right, to circumstances, to to conditions, or, or, or on yourself or any other thing. You get your eyes fixed on Jesus and you lay hold of that which he has convinced you and persuaded you is true, And you just keep walking with your own level of endurance because it is up to him, the one who initiated it, it, to also complete it. All right, so so that's for free. That's that's in addition to what we're going to try to talk about this morning, all right? But we couldn't pass that without offering a little bit of explanation. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and protector of our faith, and then look at this, who for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down right at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Now let me ask you a question. How strange is it for the word joy to be put in a series of statements that also have these words, endurance and cross and despising and shame and hostility by sinners against himself. How strange for it to be spoken that that which motivated Jesus That which energized Jesus was joy, was joy beyond the sense of duty. The other words could have been used, but this word for joy, joy that would be greater than all of the impact of of people's words that would try to bring shame on him, that would be greater, a joy that would be greater that would have a greater impact on on his emotional uh, life than the threat of death and the physical pain associated with that, that there would be something stronger and greater and more energizing to him and more powerful than all of the hostility that would be shown against him by the sinners that are spoken of here. The joy of Jesus in the middle of great conflict, in the middle of awesome and terrible opposition, opposition he didn't deserve. 
things coming against him that were just flat out wrong, that were, that were satanic, that were horrible. But for the joy set before him, he endured all these things and finished. But he was driven by joy. Folks, we, we need to retool this image of what it's supposed to look like when a person, a man or a woman or, or, a, or a young man or woman sells out to Jesus. The, the image can sometimes be painted. It just means deprivation, going to give up all this stuff, that, that it's going to be one hard season after another hard season in your life. There were those things in the life of Jesus, but there was something greater working in the heart of Jesus that caused those things that were difficult, those lonely seasons, and those times when he was misunderstood, those times when he was, he was physically opposed, there was something else working inside him that kept those other things, those difficult places and even painful places from owning him. Joy owned Jesus. Joy owned Jesus. For the joy that was set before him. I'm going to need to break that up a little bit. Look into it a little deeper. That word for joy, the noun joy, comes from a verb that means to rejoice. To rejoice, to be happy. To, but, but here's where it's tied to. Many scholars believe that it's tied to a Hebrew word that the image of, the picture, the visual picture of, of the word um, to rejoice in the, in the Old Testament was a picture of a little old lamb, a little baby sheep, that all of a sudden sees a crack in the gate. And they've been cooped up with mama, uncles, and aunts, and all the other cousins until they've just had it. You just had it. And there's a crack in the gate in the sheepfold. And that little sheep just makes a run for it and gets out on the outside of that sheepfold. And he's kicking up the back legs and kicking up the front legs and bucking and rolling and tussling and bleating and whatever else they do. Just having a fit in the open pasture. That's the word for joy. That's the visual picture of joy used in both Old Testament and New Testament. So you take that into Jesus, into what he's saying here, that for the joy that was set before him, for the opportunity, for that which would make him so joyful that he would look like a little white lamb busting out of the sheepfold, out in the open pasture, kicking and running and snorting, for the joy, that kind of joy was set before Jesus. The kind of something, what is it? What is it that would make Jesus so happy that he'd just want to run through a pasture and just throw up his hands and shout and kick? What would, it, what would make Jesus that happy? That with the goal of that in mind, with the goal of that kind of happiness and, and exuberant joy, he would be willing to go through hell to get there. Okay, now stay with me. Stay with me. That word, that word for joy is tied to the verb to rejoice, but it is also tied 
to another word. And the other word, I'm not going to give you the one that's the most, most often translated word for it in our English language. But here's, here are some other, some other synonyms. Joy, favor, acceptance, a kindness granted, a benefit that causes joy, a benefit that causes rejoicing. The more common translated word or English word is the word grace, the grace of God. But to understand that at the heart of the word grace is the word joy. At the heart of the word grace is the picture of his little sheep out there going nuts in the open pasture. The grace of God is that which the heart of God desires to give to men and to give to women to cause them great joy. And in the result in giving to them joy means that it has to originate in his heart. That that which would make Jesus joyful, that would cause him to be happy, is the realization or the goal that the day would come when folks who didn't deserve it, when folks who didn't earn it, when folks don't have a, don't have a right to a man to it, are blessed beyond anything that they could ever have asked for or ever deserved. And the result of that in their lives is that now they're skipping and they're jumping and they're going nuts. Here it is. Jesus, listen, Jesus saw you bound. Jesus saw you deprived. Jesus saw you in your abandonment. Jesus saw you in your failure. Jesus saw us in our sins. But guess what? That's not what motivated him to leave heaven and come down here. What motivated him to leave heaven and come down here is to see you free and to see you happy and to see you covered with blessing and delight that you had no way of knowing God would ever give to you and that you know you didn't earn and that you didn't deserve. Think about that. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. But he was raised up and now he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him was your set free face. <laughs> the joy that was set before him was your life transformed and made new and continually made new as his spirit continues to fill and energize a brand new life. All right, you say, well, I, I'm not so sure, Pastor, that we can just go that far with it. Well, all right, I appreciate you bringing that up, whoever you might be. Hold your place in Hebrews 12, turn left, turn left and go to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 38. Luke 4, 38. Let me start reading. And he, Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they made request of him on her behalf. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her, 
And she immediately arose and waited on them. And while the sun was setting, all who had any sick with various diseases brought them to him and laying his hands on every one of them, he was healing them. And demons also were coming out of many, crying out and saying, you are the son of God. And rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. And when day came, he departed and went to a lonely place. And the multitudes were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Why did he stay up all night laying his hands on people who had never repented, had never repented, have never said, I'm sorry for the things I've done. They never repented. They didn't have boatloads of money to support his ministry. They didn't give him a dime. He stayed up all night long, individually laying hands on one after another, after another, after another. What drove Jesus to do that? What was motivating him? Was it this sense of of imposing duty that I have an assignment and I dare not fail in it? I've got all this stuff to do and so many hours in the day and, and I'm going to just do my best and oh, I've got to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. What was it? Was it drudgery? Was it duty? Was it, was it some sort of a determination that, that he wouldn't fail his father? Yes, that was true. But was that the bottom of it? Was he loved doing it? It was joy to him. It was a part of the extending of the flow of God's unmerited kindness, undeserved favor upon people. Because at the heart of who God is, it's that kind of heart. It wasn't because God was so mad that he stomped around heaven, spit on the floor, threw lightning bolts against the wall, the angels were scared to death, and then Jesus came. It wasn't because God was mad. Jesus put it this way. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe in him would not have to perish but would have everlasting life. It was the love of God. It was the love of God. It was the love of God. And therefore, the love of God would also be expressed in a joyful demonstration of the love of God to people who don't deserve it, to people who don't know him, but just without, with, with, without, any, without any demand of a return, Jesus just blessed people. He just demonstrated the Father's love for, him, for them, and it was joy to him to participate with the Father in the plan of grace in the flow of kindness, in the flow of mercy. That's what was joy to Jesus. 
He saw the end result of it coming, and so he endured the cross. But he saw you saved. He saw you set free. He saw you with a place at the table in the Father's house. That was joy to him. He didn't spend all of his time seeing us in our slop, in our filth, in our compromise, even in our so-called righteousness, all of the righteousness of men, the writer of Isaiah would say, is his filthy rags. You can can be dressed in filthy rags and have on very expensive clothes. You can have spiritually filthy rags in God's sight and never miss a day in church. But trying to impress God with all the right things, all of the moral things I'm doing, all the, all the money I'm giving or all the time I'm spending as separate from our eyes being fixed on Jesus, who if he didn't do what he did for us, no matter how much church we go to, no matter how much money we give, we'd still be lost in our sin. You can go just as straight to hell from a church pew as you can from a crack house on a, wherever in town. All our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight. But there's no one too far away from the Lord on either end of the spectrum. And so it is that that Jesus wound up, fired up, energized by the joy of seeing the mercy of God poured out on you, poured out upon the whole world, all who would believe in him. That's what motivated him to see the cross as lesser rather than greater. To see the ones who opposed him as just, as just a part of the scenery instead of the one that would cause him to give up and quit and go away. There was a greater joy. There was a greater joy. And the greater joy was seeing captives set free. And folks who couldn't buy their way out with freedom and ones who couldn't help themselves being helped. That was the joy. That was his joy. That was his joy even when the clouds darkened and the, and, and the plot thickened and, and he, was, he was at the Garden of Gethsemane awaiting his death. For the joy set before him. I just want to say to you, brother or sister, the Lord comes to you and to me with that same kind of joy that he would desire to work in our hearts. Jesus would say, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. He comes to us with the joy offering us the joy of being an object of his grace and his mercy, of receiving Jesus Christ into our hearts that we may know the joy of being set free, the joy of of being clean, the joy of knowing that we'll never be rejected or abandoned. Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. It's, It's a call to joy. It's not just a call to a rigorous lifestyle. There may be a rigorous lifestyle some would look at and say, but that's not what the primary call is. The call is to joy that we find when we understand that Jesus has given everything he had to give so that you and I could be set free, so that you and I can be a new person and and start up new family lines of freedom instead of having to receive the, 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 the brunt of the weight of family lines of bondage and sin and defeat. 
And he also calls us into this place of participating with him in being a conveyor of the mercy and the kindness of God. I hear folks say, well, pastor, I've just lost my joy. I've just lost my joy. I've just lost my joy. Well, I'm trying to tell you, here's how you can find your joy again. You don't have to go to Timbuktu and have Dr. High Voltage pray over you in 40 different languages. You don't have to read 60 different books. You don't have to be baptized 30 times in the Jordan River. Here, here, here's, here's where you refine the joy. Here, here's where we rediscover the joy. We understand that the Lord wants us to remember what he did for us. We clean ourselves up. We smell better. We don't talk the same way. Our language is a little better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what he did for us in bringing us out and bringing us in was not so we could just forget about it. That we could say, oh, I, I don't ever have to think about that again. Oh, yes, you do. Because if you forget what you were, you, 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 won't, you won't be having any grace to extend to other people who were just like you were. But you forgot. It always bothers me that sometimes the ones who have been the great, biggest hellraisers, that, that the Lord just rescues, changes them. You know, every, everything but, but their eye color and, you know, shoe size has changed. They just radically changed. But then they start becoming God's high sheriff. Well, you know, you just, you just, and condemning and accusing and narrow and bigoted and judgmental. When you want to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, go back and check your 70s pictures, dude. Go, go, go back and remember what you are. Paul, Paul, said, Paul said, I'm the least of all the saints. All the way to his death, he remembered that he was party to the death of that young deacon, Stephen, in Jerusalem. And, and what he did to the church. What, what that does when we remember what the Lord did for us and what he rescued us from is that it keeps the gratitude fresh and it keeps the joy fresh. If you say, well, as far as the east is from the west, yes, as far as the bottomless sea, our sins are gone. Absolutely, absolutely. That we're forgiven. But it just helps to remember sometimes what in the Sam Hill we were forgiven of. Instead of just getting our nose up in there, well, I'd never do that, I'd never do that, and all those poor fools that are doing this. You were leading the pack. Remember it. And here's what happens. As you remember that, here's what's going to happen. Joy will rise up in your heart. That Jesus saw you. He found you. He changed you. He's keeping you because he loved you. He doesn't just love us when we're clean. He had to love us in our mess, in our stench. Amen. Preacher, preacher. All right. Okay, so, so we remember. We remember. And joy rises, but also, now, we have the opportunity and the call upon us to participate, to participate with the Lord by His Spirit in giving away to others what He gave to us. Unmerited favor, undeserved kindness, respect when it would seem as if they're choosing all things that would call forth disrespect. You know, I think that had to be why those 
while those tax gatherers and sinners kept coming to Jesus. And, and, and Luke, you know, he was the, the physician, and numbers meant something to him, and dates and places and geography and timelines meant something to him. And he looked out at one of that in Luke 15 when Jesus is telling the story about the prodigal son and the lost coin and the lost sheep. Luke records that at the beginning of Luke 15. It looked like every last one of the tax gatherers and sinners were in that house. They all wanted to come. Folks, listen. Do people run from you or want to come to you? It got real quiet. You know, I mean, I'm saying this myself. The, the folks who don't know the Lord, folks who are just out there, folks who may have made some choices that are despicable in your eyes, etc., etc. But do you feel like, because of whatever this distorted, perverted view of who Jesus and what the church is supposed to be has come to write itself across our hearts, that we think, well, they, I just, they, they shouldn't be around me or I shouldn't be around them. Factor the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Gospels, into that attitude. Then Jesus wouldn't have done anything but hang out with the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the scribes and all the people who quote Scripture all the time. But the ones who couldn't quote Scripture, the, the ones who didn't have a moral benchmark that other people would say, boy, that's good, they're a good person. They were the ones who would fill the house where Jesus was because there was something about, as I said before, something about his personality. They felt loved even though they probably knew they were unlovable. That They sensed joy from him even though their lives and their atmosphere may have been something very contradictory to the life that he was living. But his joy was bigger than their sin. His joy was bigger than his opponents. His joy was bigger than the frustrations of life. And what was his joy? That there'd one day be one of those tax gatherers who would end up being the writer of the longest gospel in your Bible, Levi or Matthew. The joy that was set before him, he saw Levi. He saw Saul of Tarsus. He saw you. He saw me. That was the joy that drove him and enabled him to put up with and keep going and not quit. We have that opportunity to share that same kind of calling that through us, Kindness of God would be perpetrated. I'm gonna tell you, I, I'm you know I put my boots on the same way you guys do, and and I, I can just tell you that, that it's easy to say, well, you know, if I if I just start to start trying to help everybody and start trying to be kind without any checks and balances, then then they might take advantage of me. I get that. That makes a lot of sense to me. The only problem is. You just can't find Jesus doing it that way. I mean, what if, what if out of, you know, eight or ten out of those that he stayed all up, up all night in Peter's backyard healing, what, what, if, what if some of those, you know, he would have known. He would have known. They have a history of being on the take. They're professional con people. Or, or this will just support bad habits in their lives. He could have opted out. He could have said, mm -hmm, you and mm -hmm, you and, mm -hmm, and the rest of you, you don't need to get over here. But he didn't. 
miracles, what he was convinced of. And this is what we are not convinced of. That the mercy of God is powerful. The undeserved expression of the love of God is life-changing. And for someone to receive something through you and from you that they would know they had no right to expect from you. But you just bless them anyway. You just love them anyway. And if we mess up, if we err, we're going to err on the side of trusting the mercy of God. Just like, just like, just like he risked it all to catch you and to catch me and to bring us out of where we were and to bring us into this place. And he's still working on us, still shifting us, changing us, and doing what only he can do. I want to read you a quote from our our kids. I I would come in over the years, our three growing up around the house, and and I'd be so blessed by something I'd read by some guy, you know, that lived and died in the 1700s. I'd say, kids, you just need to listen to this. See, the kids said, Dad, you going to read some more from the dead guys? Which I said, "Mm mm-hmm, I am. I'm going to read some more from the dead guys. They're in heaven, but they've written and it still speaks and this, this line, this joy that is spoken of with regard to Jesus, joy flows from the absolute freeness of the loving kindness of God to people, finding its only motive in the bounty and free-heartedness of the giver. Let me read that again. The absolute freeness, absolute freeness. No way it could be bought, no way it could be earned. The absolute freeness of the loving kindness of God to people. Finding its only motive, this absolute freeness, its only motive is in the bounty and free-heartedness of the giver. God risked it all on the expression of his love. And so Jesus comes as the expression of the Father, and he heals the sick, and he casts out devils, and he feeds, he feeds thousands, and he, he, he raises the dead, and he walks on water as proof of who he is. He demonstrates again and again the absolute free-heartedness of the loving kindness of God. Now, folks, we are called to step into that stream. Jesus would say, blessed are those who give. The greater blessing, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Well, if I give, I'm risking. I'm risking losing some of my stuff, man. I'm risking losing some of my stuff. If, 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 I, if I give, I'm, I'm, I'm risking that, that, that they may, may not appreciate it or, or I may be fostering a bad habit, et cetera, et cetera. It still stands. The words of Jesus still stand. And they are at the heart of the joy that animated him. It is more blessed. There's a greater degree of blessing on giving than there is on receiving. 
It is more blessed to give than to receive. I I, I want to encourage us at that point. I'm about done. I I want to encourage us at that point. Folks say, I've lost my joy, Pastor. I've lost my joy. I've lost my joy. I'm fixing to tell you where you find your joy. You lost your joy when you became selfish. You lost your joy when you withdrew, circled the wagons, and just began to stare at your navel. And you lost that sense. Freely I have received. Therefore, freely I will give. I'm going to tell you, it'll be a revival that'll shake your world, some of you, by dark today. If instead of Walking out into the world and said, nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Think I'll go eat worms. Long, slimy, skinny worm. You know, all that old, that old song? I, I, my parents would sing that to me when I started whining around the house. I guess that's why. That's a South Mississippi saying. Okay? San Antonio may never have heard that before. But, but, the, but, the, but the whining, and it, it'll, it'll, end, it'll end but a day. Instead of thinking that there's nobody out there that cares about you, nobody out there that loves you. Well, he loved you. He found you. But we forget that. Lord, remind me of what you got when you got me, a big fat zero and a dirty zero at that. But you changed me. You warmed my heart. And so he says, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. You go, you, you just walk through. You just this, this restaurant, getting ready to go eat. Instead of walking there already grumpy because they're going to get you your sweet tea mixed up with your unsweet tea. The tortillas are cold and the chips are stale. And they saw me coming and they pulled this stuff out just for me. <laughs> you can live there and we, we can see how far that gets us. Or we can just determine. Lord, somewhere in this restaurant, in the parking lot, cashier, Waiter, or on the way out, Lord, if there's somebody here that I can just say thank you to, if I can just bless, if I can help, I'm I'm telling you that this this is not something that you got to wait 40 years to get your joy back. The joy has been lost because we have embraced selfishness and refused generosity. The joy of the Lord, the joy of Jesus that was set before him was, in a sense, what in this wide world could happen if the love of God without any meter, without any restriction flowed through me, even if it's through my blood on that cross, what could happen? It could be an opportunity for the whole world, every living human to find life and to find forgiveness and to find eternal life and a home in the Father's house in heaven. Amen. You know, sometimes we get overwhelmed by thinking, well, there's just too many people out there, just too many people. And what am I, just a bump on a pickle? I'm just some little old one something over here. Well, if you, if you have that attitude, then you'll never do anything. You just stay in the pickle jar. Smell sour. But, but if, if you'll let the Lord bring them to you one at a time, 
If the next thing, the next, next part of your day, Lord, where, where, where do you want me to express your kindness? And, and it, it certainly needs to include where we're able to, taking them through the plan of salvation, through the gospel, pointing to Jesus, and showing how they can live forever and, and, and miss hell and make heaven and get from San Antonio to, to, to glory. But sometimes we don't have all of that luxury. There's not that much time. We don't have any indication that in the, where we read that, that Jesus spent any time teaching out of Isaiah 43 or 53 about the suffering servant. We don't have any example in that case of him saying anything other than when he was speaking to the demons and when he was speaking to the people. He was just blessing them. And I'm telling you, that was something that kept energizing the joy within his heart. It's a simple thing. It's not, it, it's not some, some unknown. It, it, it's the visible. It's the known. It's what's next, Lord. What, how? So I, I'm not sure where Shirley was this last week, but I was, I was at the house by myself. The doorbell rang late in the afternoon. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, I don't do a whole lot of, if I don't know who it's there, I don't necessarily answer all the doors. Forgive me, but I don't. But when I looked around the crack in the door and window, I looked out and I saw a man standing there. And I saw two little children standing with him. Doorbell had rung, I opened the door. And he said, sir could we mow your grass? I looked out past him, and there was an old beat-up Suburban. But the back end of it popped open, and there was a lawnmower and some weed eaters and a blower or two sticking out the back. And in that moment, when I wasn't necessarily, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, this is not super spiritual St. Dave here. But something went off in my spirit when I saw those kids. I said, well, I don't, I don't need you to cut my grass. And really, the reason that is I get more attaboys from Shirley if I cut my own grass. <laughs> so it wasn't a totally unselfish thing. He said, I've been, in a, I've been in a hotel for a few weeks, and I knew what that meant. He was pretty, he was pretty marked up. And he said, I'm out, and... We're just seeing, trying to see where we can help. I looked at the little girl. I said, what's your name? She said, my name's Abigail. And I said, well, you know, our oldest daughter is named Abigail. Do you know what Abigail means? She said, no, sir. She said, it means father's. I said, it means father's joy. It means father's delight. The little boy who was standing with him, he said, his name is Abraham. I said, boy, you, you got him loaded up with some names. And there were those two, but then there were probably another three or four kids in the suburban with mom. I knew I, knew I didn't want him to cut the grass, but, I, but I, I knew it felt like there was just something more. And so I said, well, could you, could you get the others to come up here? I want to talk to you a minute. 
So they, they came out. Mom came out carrying one. And I sat out on our front porch, or front porch steps and just looked up into their face. And, just... and I'm not saying this because I'm some super saint. You know I'm not. You know I'm not. But what I'm just telling you is in the ordinary places of your life, when you're saying, Lord, I want to be a conduit through which your mercy will flow, like you flowed into me, God, let me be that for somebody else. He will bring them to you. He will open your eyes if you need to go to them, but they will be receptive. They'll be ready. And I sat there, and I looked up into their faces, and I said, and I said, listen, the reason I'm saying something to you right now is because your daddy, as he said goodbye when, he, when I told him he didn't need to cut my grass, he looked back at me, and he said, God bless you, sir. That hit my heart, and I want to just say to you, here's what you need to know. I want you to know Jesus loves you. Jesus died on the cross for you. Jesus wants to come into your heart, and you can open your heart up to him and receive him and know that he'll take care of you for the rest of your life, and he'll take you to heaven when that, time's come, that time comes. And I just kind of visited with him, looking around at him, and then I said, I want to pray. Can we, can we pray? So 5 o'clock traffic going by in front of our house, and we live on a corner, this way, this way, you know, stuff going on out there, but there was a circle about, I don't know, six, seven, eight of us, little bitty hands and three grown-ups, and we have our heads bowed, and we're just praying and thanking the Lord, and I'm praying a blessing upon them. Lord, bless them. I felt like, too, and it was an easy thing to do, that the Lord wanted me to go ahead and pay them for what I would have paid them if they were going to cut the grass. Because I wanted, I, I wanted those kids to see. The mom and dad, we don't, I don't know about anything. But I wanted those kids to see there's kindness and there's free in Jesus. And not everybody who's talking about church, not everybody who's talking about religion is on the take and is a chief and is a scumbag. There may be somewhere, that little Abraham, that little Abigail and those others that were there, that they'll remember, they, if they ever get back by that house again, or maybe they'll just remember. You know, there was this man came out there and sat down on the steps and gave us money for work that we didn't do, and then he prayed for us, and he talked to us about Jesus. If that's all they got, I'm going to tell you, I came away from that. I came away from that with a fresh stirring of joy in my heart because I could remember, listen, I could remember when people would come out of the blue and they would, they would bless and seek to minister to and take care of Shirley and me and our little ones when, when, when some of you know the story, when we didn't have anything and didn't have anywhere to go and didn't know what was coming next. But God made a way. God blessed. God replenished. God blessed us. Now it's my turn. Now it's your turn. You find your joy, brother, where you left your joy. Sister, we left it for we forgot what he's done. And we don't have it being replenished because we're living in a selfish world. For God so loved the world 